0: Everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with and Branch. We have and Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They're completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code Monus at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONOOS, M-O-N-E-W-S for 15%, 1-5% off your order.
1: Hey everyone, it's Mosh Wanunu and it's Monday, June 27th, 2022. My co-host Jill is unfortunately feeling a bit under the weather today, so you'll be starting the week just with me. And as we continue to assess the fallout of the Friday Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade, the weekend was full of legal maneuvers, protests, discussions, interviews, network TV, local TV, federal, state, over what is next. With all that in mind, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with the leading reporter who covers the court, Jan Crawford, CBS News's chief legal correspondent. I actually spoke to her back in January for an interview I did for my Patreon supporters where she predicted that they would be overturning Roe v. Wade. And so I thought there was no one better to talk about all this stuff. Uh, Jan knows the court like no one else. She has sources there like no one else. And we really get into the nitty gritty here of why the court decided Row the way it did, what upset conservatives for so long about this decision, Um, where liberals may have gone wrong over the course of the past 40 years. She also gets into what is going to happen related to travel for abortion, into abortion pills, and of course, the fear that some people have about issues like contraception and same sex marriage coming up. Jan has insight into all of that. But before we get to the interview, A check of the latest headlines, activists and leaders on both sides of the abortion debate are girding for what could be a years-long struggle in the fallout of the Roe v. Wade decision. Several states have already banned the procedure, including Kentucky, Oklahoma, Missouri, Arkansas, South Dakota, and Louisiana. States like Ohio and Texas have enacted six-week abortion bans. In all, nearly 26 states have laws that indicate or planning laws uh, in which they could outlaw or set limits on abortion. Another 20 states have passed laws looking to protect abortion. Those are states like California, New York, Illinois, Oregon, Washington. They're also looking at ways, some of those states, to help women in states where the procedure is banned access facilities in the states where it is legal. A new CBS News poll out on Sunday found that 59% of Americans disapprove of the decision. That includes 67% of women who oppose the overturning of Roe, while men appear to be split on the issue 50-50. The poll also finds that 50% of Democrats say the decision will make them more motivated this fall. 42% Democrats say it'll have no impact. On the other side, 20% of Republicans say the decision makes them more motivated, while 77% of Republicans say the decision will have no impact on whether or not they're going to vote. How this lands in the fall and whether there are enough abortion-motivated voters is something... Democrats are depending on, given the state of the economy and inflation. They've been a huge drag on Biden, who has some of the lowest polling numbers of any president in modern history. The big question, of course, is will abortion continue to be an issue four and a half months from now? And will it matter to voters who are looking at other issues like the economy and inflation when they cast their ballots in the fall? The bottom line here is that what happened on Friday, the Supreme Court now kicks the issue to every one of the 50 states. Uh, And like we said, there are a whole number of states that are protecting it. There are a number of states that are banning it. And there are a bunch of interesting states that I'll be talking about with Jan. Somewhere in the middle, these purple states, the North Carolinas, the Virginias, the Georgias, the Wisconsins, the Michigans, where there's effectively split rule, right? Democrats control one part of the state government. Republicans control another part of the state government. And we'll see what the fallout is and what the laws end up being in a number of those states. A couple other brief things happened over the weekend. President Biden on Saturday signed the bipartisan gun bill we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks. It passed the House, it passed the Senate, got about a dozen Republicans in each. That includes Mitch McConnell. Uh, this, of course, is something gun safety advocates acknowledge they didn't get everything they wanted, but this is the first in effectively a generation gun bill. It expands the background check system for prospective gun buyers under the age of 21. It uh, sets aside uh, money in a number of states for mental health and uh, also gives money to states to implement red flag laws, among other provisions. One other thing we're watching this week is the G7 conference. This is the conference of the seven biggest economies in the world. Joe Biden is in Europe for the meetings. They'll be discussing Ukraine, inflation, uh, and a whole bunch of other issues the biggest economies are facing. So we'll monitor that for headlines this week. And one reminder before we get to the interview, please follow the show on the podcast app you are listening to us on, whether it's Apple, Spotify, etc. Give the show a follow, give us a review. Your support makes a difference and helps us continue to grow Mo News on every platform. We appreciate all the support you've given us in the first couple of weeks. With that said, let's get to my interview with Jan. Jan, I was glued to your coverage Friday, and I so appreciate you joining me.
2: Well, thank you, Moshe. I'm always happy to join you. Have a real conversation about what's going on.
1: I was lucky to call her a colleague for 10 years at CBS News. Even luckier to call her a friend. Jen has a law degree from the University of Chicago and has covered the court for nearly three decades, as she tells me, for the Chicago Tribune, PBS, ABC and CBS. Is that right, Jen?
2: Uh, I think
1: that about covers it. Eh, maybe a few more but whatever. <laughs> she and but we're not going to stop there. She's also the author of, uh, of a New York Times bestseller on the court titled Supreme Conflict. She's interviewed a number of the justices including Chief Justice John Roberts who did his first television interview with her. I one thing I always appreciated about you Jan is that I felt you always uh, told the stories straight, which is why I loved watching your coverage and you break down the decisions 200 pages of them uh, on Friday, live on television. When we spoke back in January and I asked you what would happen, you called it. You said they're going to overturn it. The initial case was just about Mississippi's ban at 15 weeks. But why did you get the early sense that the court was going to go the way, go all the way here?
2: Well, first of all, I mean, I think I mean, I've covered these nomination hearings for a really long time and I've seen kind of in my book, I went and conservatives obviously were deeply disappointed by some of the what they see as failures of you know previous Republican nominees, and so there was a concerted effort to get solid judicial uh, you know confirmations of these nominees that had a solid judicial philosophy that was conservative. And it was clear to me that this bunch has that the last three for sure, and of course Justice Alito, and we knew where Justice Thomas stood. So you know, I, I felt like this was a group that was likely to have this conservative legal philosophy. That would think that Roe versus Wade was absolutely lawless and an exercise of raw judicial power, as Justice White wrote in his dissent back in 1973. So, going into the legal, uh, the oral arguments, that was kind of where I was coming from. And when you watch the arguments in this case, the Mississippi case, I thought it was pretty clear that there were at least five justices signaling that they were going to overturn Roe versus Wade. They believed that that was made up law. It was not in the Constitution. It had damaged the court, led to division in society, and it was time for the Supreme Court to get out of it.
1: Can you explain uh, for just kind of court observers and the people just kind of reading the headlines this week, why is it that the conservatives, that those five justices felt Roe was made up law?
2: Well, because a conservative, you know, and I mean, this also the bottom line here is that elections matter, right? So, um a Democratic president is going to look for legal scholars or law professors or lower court judges who has a, quote, liberal judicial philosophy. And that's a philosophy that's more willing to read rights into the Constitution to kind of suggest that, as Justice Breyer always said, it's a living Constitution. It has to evolve with today's standards. Conservative legal thought is that, no, you don't, because if you do that, then it's just whatever the judges say the Constitution is, Based on their policy preferences, you have to look at the text of the Constitution. Uh, look at the, you know, what the original understanding of that was by the framers, and you know what they were trying to get to, and you know potentially the history. And so, you know, that's that's the, the big difference in those two philosophies that you see on the court. And the the five that we saw overturning Roe very much share that conservative legal philosophy that you don't read rights into the Constitution, and there is no right to an abortion in the Constitution or anything that suggests that was grounded in history or, you know, all the other things that they would consider in evaluating, whether it's in fact a constitutional right.
1: I'm intrigued about the role of John Roberts, who's an originalist in his own right. (laughs) And, you know, and his role, or I guess lack thereof, he tried for months to get one of them to join him in a middle ground approach you know, allow the Mississippi 15-week ban, but don't overturn Roe. What do you make of his concurring opinion? Why do you feel, um, what's your sense as to why he was unsuccessful here?
2: Well, because the other five thought we're not going along with this because, you know, Roe was wrong and we need to correct it. And you're just, you know, basically looking out for playing politics and worrying about what people might think and, you know, the institution. And regardless of what people might think or the institution, we have to worry about the Constitution, so that's where the five were coming from. There was never going to be any kind of, it, it was clear at argument, even Kavanaugh signaled at argument that he, this is how he saw this case, that the court was going to be neutral on abortion, not take a view anymore and send it back to the States. Roberts is someone who the second he stepped foot on that Supreme Court really believed that he could convince other justices to rule in a more narrow way so that they might have consensus so that would you know do away with so many of these 5-4 decisions and just go as far as you might need to but don't go all the way and then you might get more people on board well that was a failure in his first year on the court when you know the court in a series of decisions turned sharply to the right on his very first year the liberal justices initially thought uh, oh, okay, we like this new chief. He's talking about consensus and narrowly. And by the end of the term, one of the justices, who I'll not say, was complaining that, you know, to John Roberts, consensus means that you agree with him. Uh, that, you know, he wasn't really willing to kind of find consensus. He just meant, you know, come agree with me. So, you know, that's kind of where Roberts was right from the start. He always thought you should do things incrementally. Uh, He never wanted to like swing for the fences on some of these things, even though it's a distinction without a difference. He thought that the Mississippi law that banned abortion at 15 weeks uh, could be reconciled with the core holding of Roe versus Wade, which, of course, says states cannot ban abortion before viability at around 24 weeks. So like, I'm not really sure how those square up. Um, But he said, well, we can throw out the viability standard and still uphold Roe and you know, the other five were like, no, we can't. Let's, like, you're just now making up some other law, um, like some other standard, like just, just like Roe did, just like Casey did. I think the biggest question after we got that leaked opinion that showed where Justice Alito was going with this, uh, that Politico reported there were five justices in the majority for this, that suggested that the chief was over here, and there's been all the speculation that the chief might try to peel off Brett Kavanaugh or someone else to join him and stop the court from overturning Roe. I don't think that was ever going to happen. That was that was that was not gonna happen. And the only question to me was whether Roberts would just drop all that and decide, okay, I see the writing on the wall. I may as well join the five.
1: On the Roberts question, you know, it seemed like one of the things conservatives say here is that, you know, Roe was a made-up standard and then Casey was another made-up standard. And then Roberts, in his concurring opinion, talks about a new standard he was thinking about called reasonable opportunity uh, mm-hmm. for abortion. And so effectively, I- explain what that would have meant and, again, why conser- why the rest of the conservatives were unconvinced by, you know, Roberts's- Just remember,
2: I mean, the conservative legal movement- has, has believes that Roe is one of the most egregious mistakes in the history of the Supreme Court. I mean, there are several others that you can think of, but that's one of them too. And so, you know, the idea was they made this up. They created this whole standard that's not in the Constitution about viability and when women could, could and could not have a constitutional right to abortion. And, you know, they went through the Roe Court, kind of read, as Justice Salito said, like something... You would see in a policy paper, not from a court, which is supposed to be looking at the constitution or the law. Um, And so here comes Roberts and says, well, okay, fine. Viability. That was a really bad idea. How about we do this standard, which is, let's just say a woman's right to choose is, you know, basically she has enough time. I mean, 15 weeks, that's enough notice to choose. So that's not an incursion on the right to choose. So to the conservatives, That's just another made-up thing like Roe was, like Casey was in 1992. And, you know, they weren't going to go along with
1: that. So now to the dissent, uh, the constitutional argument that the liberals made, the three liberals on the court, what do you make of their opinion, their argument? What what was their case for uh, upholding Roe?
2: Well, first of all, before we talk about, like, the, the specifics of the reasoning of the dissent, I think it's really interesting to point out that it's highly unusual. Like I, I can't remember the last time I saw a joint dissent. Typically the court, the individual justice will take on a dissent and then the others will join it. Uh, and I really expected in this case that we would get three separate dissents. I thought Justice Breyer would focus on stare decisis. I thought uh, Justice Sotomayor would focus on the harm to women and the reliance women might've shown and you know, relying on Roe and Casey and organizing their lives. I thought Justice Kagan would focus on the institutional concept of this. And then they could all just join each other and all that. Instead, they issued a joint dissent that they were all united on, uh, which is unusual. And I thought, you know, really kind of a statement, like we are united on all of this. um, And it was similar to what we saw even in 1992, when the three justices came together to refuse to overturn Roe in the Casey decision. Of course, that's Justice Kennedy, Justice Souter, and Justice O'Connor. Um, so there was kind of this weird symmetry there, too. And, and then they all came together and made all of those points in that one powerful dissent, uh, which was, you know, stare decisis. The court typically doesn't overturn past decisions, certainly not ones that are 49 years old and people have come to rely on um, that have you know, been essentially protected even again in 1992. The court refused to overturn it in Casey. Uh, we saw j- the, the dissenters talking about their concern about the legitimacy of the court, the institution, the harm to the republic, the harm to women, all of that in that one dissent. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, was a, it was a powerful dissent. They also raised questions in that dissent about where does this stop? Are other rights in danger? such as that are grounded in the same constitutional provisions that Roe was in the 14th Amendment, uh, kind of the, the concept of liberty and Roe, of course, being a right to privacy. Some of those decisions, like a right to contraceptives, a right to same-sex marriage, they raise questions about that. And I think that we have seen, because of Justice Thomas's separate opinion, um, we've seen a kind of um, hysteria about whether or not those cases are next, right to contraceptives, right to same sex marriage, I I see. I, I mean, there's they're not. they the court, and I mean, I don't know if you. I'm veering off now on another tangent, but no, I to,
1: no, no. I, I I wanted to get to this next. So we're talking about three precedents here, Jan, that are kind of predicated in that in that same right or the Obergefell decision on same sex marriage, the Lawrence decision on same sex relations, the Griswold decision on contraception. Um, Clarence Thomas and his concurring And another, you know, kind of goes, another
2: contraception decision you know, Baird versus Eisenstadt I mean, there's a number of cases that are so, kind of and, grounded in the same constitutional and, right
1: And this Thomas decision is dominating the headlines, you know, he mm-hmm. basically is like let's reopen all of these, let's reconsider all of these, um, the majority decision, of course, written by Alito says this is only about abortion, let us be clear, this is only about abortion and I think even Kavanaugh and his concurring also reinforces that Mm-hmm. So, so you have the liberals saying other stuff is next. You have Thomas saying, "Yep, other stuff is next." No, so, what well, he
2: says, I would like to re. I think those, you know, I think those cases we should rethink as well, or maybe you know, leave the door open for that.
1: So interpret that for you know millions of Americans that aren't you know kind of you know studied in constitutional law. But what does it all mean? And when you say like you know, we don't have to worry about this stuff that someone who's recently had a same sex marriage, like, don't worry, Obergefell is safe. What, why do you feel that way? And and what exactly was Thomas saying with his opinion?
2: Well, Justice Thomas has always been, you know, off on a trip of his own on some of this stuff. This is not the first time that he has suggested that he thinks that line of cases is just made up. You know, it's like finding implied rights in the 14th Amendment. Uh, you know, that's not what the court does, should be doing you got to look more to the text, all the kind of stuff that we talked about. He's a, the, the most conservative justice on the court, the staunchest originalist, even, you know, to the right of Justice Scalia when Justice Scalia was on the court, much more willing than any of the other justices to consider precedent. So it wasn't surprising. I don't know why Thomas felt compelled to write that separate opinion that no other justice joined. But. It's not surprising that he believes that, he said that before and he thinks that the court, I mean, he basically thinks every decision should be up for reconsideration. Um, What is surprising is how there's just been this collective freak out um, and, you know, refusal to acknowledge what not only the majority says about how, you know, we could not be more clear. Those cases are not in doubt because abortion is different. It involves a life. Unlike a right to contraceptives, unlike a right to same-sex marriage, abortion is different. Then you see Justice Kavanaugh, as you mentioned, writing that separate concurring opinion saying abortion is different. Those cases are not in doubt. So, you know, the court, you can't change the law overturned cases unless you have five votes. You know, you got to get to five. So right now we have one vote which is Justice Thomas, and we have all the others saying, I mean, the other conservatives who were on this opinion saying, this is not casting row. I mean, casting those cases into doubt. We know where the liberals will stand on that. That's three. We know where the chief would stand on that. That's four. So, I mean, it's, it, it is such a sideshow, and it is interesting to me that we have an opinion that a majority of the justices said a 49-year-old precedent was going to be overturned. That will have tremendous impact on women in many states across the country, poor women in states like Mississippi and Alabama, uh, where there will be no abortion allowed whatsoever. And for some reason, lawyers, law professors, media analysts, cable, Twitter, they've all decided they're going to focus on What's next? What's next? When the court has said that is not next. That's
1: that's from your legal perspective. You feel that some people have been more than irresponsible by saying that these other um, these other rights or these other cases are at risk. And well, the reason I can say that, like,
2: yes, you know. I do feel that way. I think that the commentary and coverage has been irresponsible and inflammatory, and the American people believe it. And CBS polling shows a majority of the people now think that it's likely the Supreme Court will overturn those cases. And that is at odds with what the court has said. That is at odds with what these justices, a majority, have done. We have one justice saying that, not five. And we're just wasting a lot of, you know, airspace and, you know, mental energy instead of focusing on what the court actually did, which is yeah. literally one of the most historic decisions in the history of the Supreme Court.
1: Yeah, let's I mean, let's talk about this, because effectively, the court has now handed this to the states. And there's a whole bunch of issues that are going to be hitting the court. I mean, if we thought we heard the last of abortion court cases, uh, with this decision, that's definitely not the case. Issues like abortion pills, interstate travel, uh, the legality of centuries old trigger laws. What do you think will make its way back up to the Supreme Court? And, and what, what are the cases that are most interesting to you?
2: You know, I think that the idea that states could prohibit women from traveling to other states to get an abortion is one that we're going to see. I think we'll see some states try to prevent that and that'll go through the legal system. And my guess is that won't get to the court because the lower courts will say that's unconstitutional, that violates your right to interstate travel, which is clearly in the constitution. And the Supreme Court is not going to allow those kind of laws if it does get to the court. And again, I mean, Justice Kavanaugh writes that in his concurring opinion, there is not support for that on this court. Um, you know, the other questions, I think a, a really interesting question is, can states ban women from ordering abortion pills through, you know, getting abortion pills through the internet and then through the mail? Obviously, states are now trying to do that. South Carolina, i mean, South Dakota, for example, among others—that um, raises interesting questions about the role of the federal government versus the states and preemption issues. And it also raises enforcement issues. How are states going to know what women are getting through the mail in some like little packet? You know, I mean, are they going to start going through their mail? Are they going to have? Mail carriers, like, oh, that looks suspicious. I better put that one aside. I mean, it's it's not unworkable in practice. And I I mean, it's not workable in practice, those kind of laws. And I think that that's also going to be challenged as, you know, violating kind of the, it'll be a federal state conflict. Um, so, I mean, there are a number of legal issues that I could see going back up to the court. The question of whether a fetus has rights. That's another big question. Um... But the the bedrock issue of whether a woman has a constitutional right to abortion, that's done. That's over. That's That this court is going to be this court for some time. And while five justices voted to overturn Roe versus Wade, if there were another challenge, you know, let's say one of those justices left. Justice, the Chief Justice John Roberts, now that it's been done and Roe is history, He's not going to vote to overturn Dobbs, so we can count him as a, a six vote. So right now there are six votes. Sorry, I banked on the table. There are six votes.
1: Um, <laughs> for for those of you listening, Jan is very passionate. So here, a, a slight thump if you see what she's saying.
2: Listen, it's it's you know it, it's been a long week, Moshe. It's uh, been a long I, week. <laughs> I,
1: I know, Jan, and we have another week upon us, and the court isn't done yet. We'll get to that in a second. So at any uh, rate,
2: you know, right now on this Supreme Court. There are six justices who are going to say there is no constitutional right to abortion. Roberts wasn't willing to go that far uh, before Dobbs. Uh, he thought they didn't need to swing for the fences. But now that they have, he's going to be on the team. So he's he's not going to vote to overturn it if it's ever challenged again.
1: Interesting. I, I was struck by one thing uh, you said on CBS Face the Nation this morning, that you said the conversation about abortion has become more punitive. It has turned yeah. neighbors effectively into bounty hunters, especially that Texas right. law. Um, what can the courts do about that, and, 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 and how, how exactly did we get here? And, you know, I was especially interested in kind of how this um, Texas law, um, where effectively you're, you know, tattling on and you're suing people over abortion, that hasn't been fully figured out yet, right?
2: No, I mean, that one's still in the legal system. What's the problem with that law is the way it was written Um, the courts haven't had a a real opportunity to jump in because it hasn't actually come up where somebody's tried to collect their money. I mean, I think it it recently has, and now that's going through the system. Um, So it was written in a way that made it very hard to challenge until it actually kicked in and somebody actually tried to collect their money and tell on someone. Um, But when we think about, I mean, you ask what role can the the courts do and, and all this kind of stuff. And I think that some of these questions, the courts can't do anything. You know, I mean, states can ban abortion now. Texas had that six-week ban. The Texas um, government wasn't going to enforce it. State officials weren't going to enforce it. They were going to let citizens enforce it and get $10,000 rewards if they found someone trying to get an abortion after six weeks. Well, I mean, now that there is no abortion in Texas, or there won't be anymore. more. There's not much use for that law. The state will just go after them. So, you know, the question, I think, more broadly is, what is the role of our political branches and the people? You know, and it's really interesting if you look back to 1973, before, right before Roe was decided, of course, it was decided in early 73, but so let's say 72, You know, states were really moving in the direction of liberalizing their abortion laws. Uh, There had been kind of a suggested nationwide law that would have allowed for three different exceptions um, to abortion bans. And states had started passing those. The first abortion was illegal across the country, illegal until 1967. That's when Colorado passed the first law. Um, saying that they would allow some exceptions to their ban, including like life, life and life of the mother, rape or incest, um, those kind of things. You know, th- other states soon followed. And then four states, including New York and Hawaii and Washington state. Um, I think Alaska was the fourth one. They just said we're going to legalize abortion completely. So all this was happening in a period between 1967 and 1973. Right, so you had at least 17 states really starting to liberalize their laws. Um, and, and those laws allowed those, those laws, including Mississippi, including South Carolina, including Florida, I mean, these kind of, now what we think of as these bedrock red states, some of those were liberalizing their laws, allowing for exceptions for rape or incest, um, among other exceptions. And so when you fast forward to today, I mean, Roe, so Roe stopped all of that, and that's a big conservative criticism.
1: So if Roe ends up getting decided the other direction, the saying it is the states, you know, it is up to the states. Yeah, the, the states thought were is that, it, that
2: way anyway.
1: It was inevitable that they were, you know, they were uh, liberalizing their abortion laws.
2: Right. And so even then Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg, has; she was quite critical of Roe for, you know, basically short-circuiting the political process. And even, I mean, President Obama... Not even speaking about Roe, but just talking about how it's always better to to build like consensus among the people instead of having the courts just dictate like a nationwide policy, because then people will resist it, and that's what happened. I mean, it short circuited uh, the political process in some ways, and so now if you fast forward to to 2022, 49 years later. We can see some of the laws that states have passed, trigger laws, laws that will take effect in weeks, months, and some of those laws are much more punitive and restrictive than what states were considering in the late 60s and early 70s. Some of those laws don't allow exceptions for rape or incest, but I do think it's interesting that today we see this kind of undercurrent that there is this kind of drive to try to to punish uh, and that's what I meant when I said the conversation, in some ways, and the laws have become more punitive.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm struck by the history here because I just want to address one more thing, which is the Roe decision was a seven-two decision. Five of the justices were appointed by Republicans, including the the chief. Explain how we got to the point where it was a seven-two decision with by majority Republican justices, and and the the state of conservative politics, and and how we got to where we are today, where a conservative majority court overturned that decision.
2: Well, because the right uh, decided that, uh, I mean, in the early 90s, that they were going to be much more rigorous about uh, screening judges that they wanted on the Supreme Court and on the lower courts. Uh, no more suitors, no more Kennedys, no more surprises. Justice Souter, uh, obviously nominated by George H.W. Bush, you know, they everyone thought they were so smart because they he was a stealth nominee and you know, they were going to sneak him on the court and he wasn't going to go through that horrific uh, confirmation process that defeated Robert Bork. Remember, Bork made no secret of his views. So, you know, Republicans were like, aha, we found this guy. No one's ever heard of, Uh, you know, he's like a hermit up there in New England and we're going to put him on the court and, you know, slam dunk. And it was just the opposite. I mean, he wore a three-piece suit and held the door open for women and, you know, he looked conservative, but, Right, Souter was
1: uh, nominated by a Republican and turned out to vote with the liberals. One of the
2: most liberal justices on the court. So, you know, because he did not have a philosophy when he went on that court. He'd only been on the lower federal appellate court a year, less than a year. And um, so, you know, Republicans weren't going to make that mistake again. They were going to look for justices with proven conservative legal ideologies. And that's what they've done.
1: And the issue of abortion had become much more important to the Republican voting base from where they were in the um, Yes, I
2: agree with that. I, get, it ha- I had to think about that yeah. for a minute, but yeah, no doubt. Um, and that's been a strategic decision um, by anti-abortion forces, which there were two major setbacks for them, and in each one they got stronger. 1992, when the court failed to overturn Roe v.ersus Wade by one vote, uh, and at the very last minute when Reagan appointee Anthony Kennedy changed his mind and decided he just couldn't do it. So close in 1992, one vote away. And then in 2012, when Mitt Romney did not really embrace the pro-life movement, he uh, and other Republican politicians were perceived as just paying lip service, uh, you know, where they would just, you know, we don't have to talk about your issue. Come on, you're not going to vote for Democrats, you know, pat you on the head and go stand over there. And the movement, um, really decided and and led by the Susan B Anthony um, now called Pro Life America I think it's their name they've tweaked it a little bit recently uh decided that they had to become more politically strategic and they had to elect more people to office and uh, as the founder you know Marjorie Danifelser told me and this piece is airing um, on Monday on CBS you know we decided we had to reward our friends and punish our enemies and as a result in 2014 they defeated seven um, uh, pro-choice candidates. And so they were able to like kind of bolster the Senate and some of the other uh, state legislatures. And that, of course, paves the way for more judges.
1: You you spoke a bit about the confirmation hearings. and I'd love to get your thoughts on the process. So Susan Collins says she feels upset and misled by what some of the conservatives said. You have folks even like AOC who are saying we need to begin impeachment proceedings, that they lied. That uh, several of the conservative uh, justices, when they were going through the nomination hearings, said Roe was settled law. Um, You watch, you cover these confirmation hearings. Explain what they were saying. Explain, is it fair to say they were lying? No. This is perjury. No, no, Um, no, 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 no.
2: no.
1: Okay, so (laughs) explain, you know, explain why Susan Collins feels misled and upset. Well, I'm sure she Um, feels
2: misled and upset because she's in a world of trouble now. You know, I mean, her, you know, voters in her state weren't keen on her voting to confirm Brett Kavanaugh or Neil Gorsuch or Samuel Alito, who she also voted for, by the way, the author of Mm -hmm. this opinion. So, you know, I'm sure she's concerned about that. But those look there is there is boilerplate language that all Supreme Court nominees use. And when, in it, when they're ever asked about precedent or cases or how they may rule, they're coming on there and they're looking at this from the outside. They're lower court judges, they're law professors, and when they're asked, "Is Rose settled law?" Well, the answer is, of course, Rose settled law. But that doesn't really mean anything. It's settled law from their perspective in that moment, but it's settled law only until the Supreme Court says it's not.
1: So settled law does not mean permanent, forever. No, it
2: means. Yeah, right then, an appellate court judge, to an appellate court judge, it's settled law. You know, whatever the Supreme Court says, that's the law. They have to follow it. But it doesn't mean that it's settled permanently and if you look at even there's questions that sometimes they'll try to, I mean, not that they ever ask any good follow up questions. They just read most of them just read what their staffers wrote, I think. You're but, talking
1: about, you're, you're talking about the, the, the way senators ask questions of yeah. the justice. Yeah, yeah. So if they
2: had any, sometimes they'll have some decent follow ups. Um, some of them do, you know, so that would be like, well, yes, you're saying it's settled law. But if you were on the Supreme Court, would you view Roe as settled law? You know, would, would you consider it was settled law and could not be overturned? And then that's when they all pull the same. Well, that's an issue that might come before the court, so I can't answer that. And they all say that Justice Ginsburg said that she kind of started as it. the Ginsburg standard. And that is I mean, it's fair, fair enough. You, you don't want nominees to be weighing in on cases before they've had a chance to, like, get the briefs, the arguments, all that. OK, fine. So to me, this is much ado about nothing. And if you're going to impeach Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Barrett or whatever, then you're going to have to impeach
1: all of them. So to the non-legal uh, person, when they say settle law, that doesn't mean permanent law, it doesn't mean untouchable. So this idea that like, well, they said it was settled and then they overturned it. There's not a inherent contradiction there.
2: No, because they're at being asked that question as a nominee to the Supreme Court. And where they are in that moment, they're still an appellate court judge. And if someone asks you, is Rose settled law? You would say, yeah, it's settled. You know, what's today? Yep, it's settled. But that doesn't mean that when you get on that Supreme Court, you might not rethink it. So if you ask the next question, what's it going to mean to you as a justice? Then, you know, you would get an answer that could be very different. But of course, then they would just say, well, we can't answer that.
1: Right, that which is not the close. mashups, which are not the mashups that are going viral on social media this weekend. The I can't answer it. It's it's that previous. It's the So I will tell you
2: question. something about social media. And I am what I have done, I mean, obviously this is one of the most contentious decisions in, you know, Supreme Court history, Roe, and now Dobbs, another one of the most contentious. And I I I decided that my goal in all of this was to just report what the court was saying, consider what I knew from my reporting over the years, and be as clear and objective and fair as possible. And as a result of that, I have not looked at Twitter in weeks, weeks. So, Let me tell you,
1: you haven't missed anything, Jen.
2: So, because I don't <laughs> want to know, I don't want to be influenced by like what you know, what's much of which is nonsense. It's
1: just yeah. nonsense. A couple of the other issues that have come up that people are asking about on social media, et cetera. And I, oh, I don't I, know. I, don't, I wouldn't know about I, that. Well, I was going <laughs> to ask you. I was going to ask you. I know you don't have a command for every state in what they're doing right now, but two things are in regards to IVF embryos and then ectopic pregnancies and some of the medical procedures. What What is your sense of how states, even the reddest of reddest states might be handling um, those issues?
2: Well, I mean, I think that's going to be very much up to, I uh, like all of this is, it's going to be up to the state legislatures. Court has said there's no constitutional right to an abortion. So if a state wants to ban abortion in some of those circumstances, then, you know, like ectopic pregnancies, you're going to have to take that up with your state legislator. I would be absolutely shocked. Um, and we'll see. It'll be interesting if there is a groundswell of support uh, to ban IVF or to ban uh, an abortion in the case of an ectopic pregnancy, which of course is potentially life-threatening. Right. So, and I think that one thing that'll be interesting to look at is how some of these states actually react, because for so long we have been in the situation where Republicans could, some of them, um, like almost pander to their base and push the most extreme restrictions on abortion, and there was no political cost to them because they could, uh, you know, show the base if they were there with them. But then in the back of their mind, they're like, yeah, but you know what? The court's going to overturn that. So I can just say whatever I want, because this is never going to become law. And so they didn't have to worry about the political consequences of, you know, enraging uh, people for some of these extreme measures. And so now they can't do that. So I think that it will be interesting to see if, if legislators in some of these states actually continue. They will in some, of course, and already have, but will continue to take some of those extreme positions. And if they do, how voters will respond, how women will respond. It
1: it, it is fascinating because, you know, you're saying the issue now, now Republicans actually have to be responsible for what they say on abortion, because for so many years, they were also able to then push it to Democrats being like, what do you think about late term abortions? What do you think about ex-abortions? And Democrats were having an internal fight within the party, even like Joe Biden, when he was a senator, at some point, he voted against late-term abortions. Um, and so it was an internal Democratic issue for so many years, and now roles are reversed effectively. That's, I think it's going to be a, against... a
2: Democratic issue, too, though, because yeah. you're going to see, you know, and I think some of the, da- I mean, we'll see again, but I think one concern for both parties is trying to go too far. And um, for Democrats, that means potentially allowing no rest- That gives Republicans a, a good talking point, right? Allow no right. restrictions on abortion. Uh, ask for state funding to pay for abortion. Ask for state funding to help women travel to your state to pay for abortion. You know, all that might be a bridge too far uh, for people and, in those states. And it certainly would give Republicans a way to present Democrats as extremists. And then on the flip side, Republicans, you know, when you start talking about banning IVF and not having an exception for rape and incest. And uh, that, again, is an issue that Democrats could use if they go too extreme.
1: Yeah. Looking at your CBS News poll um, that was out over the weekend. There's a lot of nuance when you actually ask, actually, I think it was the poll from May, where you asked people, okay, how many people agree with a one-month ban? How many people agree it should be legal through the first trimester, through the second trimester? There's lots of shades of gray here when it comes to how the American people actually feel about the issue of abortion.
2: Right, and that's been consistent through the years. I mean, Pew does a really, in addition to CBS, of course, but Pew does a really exhaustive poll on abortion. And if you look, it's generally most Americans support Roe versus Wade, don't think it should be overturned. But then when you go into the tabs of that poll, they break it down to ask, you know, should abortion, uh, you know, be legal after this? Or would you support a 15 week ban? And the vast majority of the American people in those polling and that polling would support a ban on abortion at 15 weeks, um, which is, you know, you know, what, three and a half, four months and, yeah, uh, and that, and, of course, and, and, is completely uh, uh, inconsistent with Roe versus Wade. You know, you can't right, ban right. abortion under Roe before 24 weeks. And even then, you have to allow so many exceptions that it, it actually is really much beyond viability.
1: Right. For folks who are unaware, the, the U.S. had one of the more progressive uh, abortion policies for many years under Roe, 22 weeks. The vast majority of Europe, Western Europe especially, they're all between 12 and 15 weeks, effectively. Right. Right. Uh, um. The reputation of the court is um And by the way, that, most, that
2: is what yeah. polling suggests that Americans would support. But the question is, is consensus on abortion possible? And I, I don't I don't see any evidence of it yet. I think Virginia is going to be a really interesting state to watch. Uh the yeah. Republican governor there has proposed a fifteen week ban, maybe, you know, as much as twenty. Um, you know, I see no evidence that there's going to be any these kind of
1: per, these purple states are going to be interesting to watch the, mm-hmm. the wisconsin's the michigan's the north carolina's where you have even democrats like georgia in the,
2: you know some
1: of the yes. yeah um though i think georgia's even considering right something more restrictive right now but especially given kind of the um the increasing strength of democrats in georgia exactly so like the, georgia will
2: be
1: an uh, interesting state um so the just before uh the decision came out on friday a poll came out um that showed that one in four Americans now have confidence in the court. Three in four Americans no longer have confidence. I think it was a, it was a Gallup poll, 25% of Americans. It's the lowest in the polls history. How seriously is that something they take inside the court? Is that something the justices will discuss?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think some, uh, the chief justice, certainly Justice Breyer, they take that very seriously because Justice Breyer would always say to the court, we, they don't have a standing army. Like they don't, they don't have a way of enforcing their decisions except for, you know, people have to respect them. But the court has, you know, I mean, this is a low point, but they've had low points before. Um, But the one thing about the court is that they have had more, it has had more respect than other institutions, which, of course, always are well
1: below 25.
2: (laughs) You know, they're down in in the single digits, you know.
1: yeah, I mean they are starting to approach Congress. Use, too, use car way. salesmen, the media, media. lawyers. Congress. Yeah. <laughs> but
2: twenty five percent, hey.
1: <laughs> hey, we got one out of four Americans. Um but take that how, Congress. <laughs> how how do they go about is there a way to reverse it at this point? Or, you know, is that just something they have to live with? That we live in a time where the majority of Americans have lost trust in most major institutions. So welcome to the club, Supreme Court.
2: You know, that's a that's, I think, something that my guess is it's not going to change for a while. I mean, you've got to think about what's ahead for the court this this week. We're going to have a case on school prayer. So a big religion case. We're going to have a case of the narrow technical case, but it does address climate change and the regulation of greenhouse gases around power plants. So, you know, that's going to be you know, perceived as hostile to climate change. And then next term, they have a case about affirmative action and college admissions that I feel certain they're going to strike down and not allow. They have a case on gay rights and whether or not artists and designers can refuse to create content for same-sex couples or put on their websites that they don't agree with same-sex marriage. It's a free speech case. Uh, So there's a voting rights case. So we have a situation now where last week alone, the court dealt with guns, abortion. This week, we're going to have religion and climate change. Next term, we're going to have race, um, gay rights. So, I mean, it's 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 hard to almost think of any, what's another contentious, divisive issue? What, what have they missed?
1: I, I was going to say that that pretty much covers it in terms of, Kind of hot button social issues. So if you come from a more progressive viewpoint, I says, yeah, you know, so it sounds like you're saying, buckle up, folks.
2: Exactly. That's, I mean, if you're if if you are outraged about last week's decisions and we see the protests sweeping the country, wait till next term.
1: That brings me to the, one of my last questions here, which is security. I mean, we obviously saw um, the man who was arrested outside Kavanaugh's house, you know, threatening to kill him. Uh, Incidentally, you know, had had some mental health issues. Clearly he called the authorities on himself. Um, But only after
2: texting his sister and telling him what he was about to do. And had she not gotten the text and called him immediately uh, and talked him off the ledge, told him what to tell 911 when he called. And you can see it reflected in the language he uses in the transcript Mm -hmm. um, that if she had not responded to that text. Uh, it could have been entirely different.
1: So what's being done about security for the justices at this point? Did the legislation go through on, on Capitol Hill and how it did. concerned are they? Yeah. It did, but I mean,
2: I think there is concern that there just aren't enough resources. I mean, even the, um, the attempted, alleged attempted assassination of Kavanaugh, uh, you know, this guy got out of a cab at one o'clock in the morning, dressed in black, carrying suitcases that were, you know, that included among other things, you know, a gun, ammunition, zip ties, uh, a knife, pepper spray. I mean, all that was in his bag. He took through security at, you know, when he left California. But the U.S. Marshals didn't stop him, watched him get out of the cab, made eye contact with him. And then he wandered around Kavanaugh's house for 45 minutes. So the only time law enforcement got involved was after he called 911 and the uh, county police came.
1: Do you think so that, the point is yeah.
2: there 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 clearly are um, there clearly needs to be perhaps more security and training. And I think there already there already is. That was a, kind of a a wake up call.
1: Do you think um, more transparency from the court? And by that, I mean, like cameras in the court or just seeing these folks speak out uh, more often than these you know kind of random speeches and the you know, the interviews that they do around book releases, do you think that would help them potentially yeah, connect I with? Yeah, I
2: do. I mean, you know, just covering the arguments, you can see they're like so engaged in these complex areas. I mean, issues of the law, they have different views, but they're all engaged in it. I mean, just watching them, I it's a shame to me that more people can't see how they do that and how it is something that actually, it's nine really smart people you might not agree with the word half of them have to say, but they're engaged in this kind of pursuit of reading the constitution the way that they think it should be read, reading statutes the way they think those statutes should be read. And, you know, I think it reflects well on the institution watching them at work. But, so yeah, I mean, I do think that would be helpful.
1: And yet what are the odds that we ever see cameras in the courtroom? Zero. And that's because tradition?
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think that they worry that people will grandstand, uh, you know, lawyers will grandstand, you know, Judge Ito really didn't do anybody any favors in the OJ trial. Um, it's
1: still, still the Judge Ito effect nearly 30 years yeah, ago. And I
2: also think they like their anonymity. And certainly now when we see the enhanced threats to the justices, uh, I think they like their anonymity.
1: And last but not least, um, th- you know, we first learned on how they would rule here with the leak in early May. There's been an investigation that's been going on. What do we know about that investigation? Uh, what has nothing. changed? Will, we know nothing we see, about it. You know, will, will we hear who the leaker was? I and mean, what's your no, sense of my
2: No, my, my bet is we will never know, and the court may never know who leaked that. And maybe it was... Uh, An unintentional leak. Uh, Maybe someone felt they had to share that opinion because they were so outraged or upset or wanted guidance. And, you know, maybe you think
1: the leak came from the left. You think it came from the uh, one of the, that's my
2: gut, but that's only that, that, that's largely because I think that, um, uh, conservatives are, are not big fans of the media and certainly not Politico. So I would find it surprising that they would choose to leak to Politico
1: so, the, so even the publication that was leaked to is uh, is evidence of who the leaker might have been?
2: Not necessarily. And no one has yeah. any idea. And if you're just kind of looking, trying to put clues together, I just, that seems to me there are other publications that a conservative might go to. It,
1: was, so, so so that's an investigation that Roberts is keeping in-house and will be kept in-house and unless yeah. there's another leak about the investigation or Politico names. Their they never leaker.
2: know. And the, and the yeah. court may not get to the bottom of it.
1: Jan Crawford, thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Moshe.
1: I want to thank Jan uh, for her time and her insight there. She is uh, an incredible resource, has incredible perspective when it comes to all things Supreme Court, so we'll definitely have her back, especially as we talked about in that next session next year. Also, I want to wish Jill a speedy recovery. I hope to have her back for our Thursday edition. Before that, though, we'll have another interview for you on Wednesday. We'd love your feedback on how we're doing. Uh, Also, what you'd like us to be covering, email us, podcast at mo.news, podcast at mo.news. Subscribe to the Mo News newsletter, moNews.Bulletin.com, where you can get regular updates on what's happening in the headlines, and of course follow me on Instagram at Moshe at M O S H E H. And don't forget, of course, to follow us and review us uh, in the podcast app that you're listening to us on. Uh, it helps us keep our rating high on Apple, Spotify, and every other platform. And I wanted to wish you all a great week. See you on Wednesday.